Hi, and welcome to Talk of the Town After Hours. I'm Grace Fairchild for WVBR News, and this episode has segments that aired live on our April 3rd show on 93.5 FM. We'll have some important insight on the rise in violence against Asian, Asian American, and Pacific Islanders from Dr. Christine Balance of Cornell's Performing Media Arts and Asian American Studies departments. Then later, we'll hear an interview with Cornell Law Professor John Bloom about the legal procedures and expectations surrounding the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin for the murder of George Floyd. We won't waste any time getting to our first story. Here's WVBR News' Izzy Ferbata. Besides an April Fool's Day snow shower, Ithaca is finally shaking off its icy coat and warming into the start of a beautiful spring. Yet, over the past few weeks, joy and optimism have been in short supply, particularly for the Asian members of our community. Almost every day, it seems as though a new tragedy strikes headlines, a new act of violence, a new case of discrimination. Weeks later, the nation continues to mourn the eight lives lost on March 16th in Atlanta, Georgia. Among the victims of the senseless crime were six Asian American women. The Ithaca community was quick to respond to this devastating act of racism. At Cornell, President Martha Pollack issued a statement which condemned the events and reaffirmed the university's position of solidarity with its Asian and Asian American community members. The student assembly worked rapidly to address topics like discrimination and safety on campus. But despite all the good intentions and official statements in the world, this current wave of anti-Asian racism cannot be understood as or treated like a simple issue. These events are linked inextricably to misogyny, stereotypes, caricatures, and the history of America itself. Over the next few minutes, we'll have a chance to speak with Cornell professor Dr. Christine Balance, a specialist working at the intersection of performance in media arts and Asian American studies. In our conversation, we'll discuss these linkages and also look towards healing, community care, and the importance of celebrating our cultures. To begin this interview, I asked Dr. Balance about current media coverage deeming recent events a surge or wave of anti-Asian racism. In particular, I was curious to know how this kind of perspective might limit our ability to see current events as extensions of history much of the media coverage, right? Um, and in some ways, right, the kind of focus on particular types of hashtag campaigns, right, situate um, this recent surge, as you call it, um, as something that just happened in 2016 or with the arrival, right, of our former occupant of the White House, right? But um, as many of my uh, faculty colleagues, other professors who've been writing uh, opinion editorials have noted, right, that this violence has actually uh, met Asians and Asian Americans since they landed on U.S. shores, right? So if we think about the immigration laws, 1875 Page Act uh, and the 1882 Exclusion Act directed specifically against Chinese women um, and other Chinese laborers, uh, if we think about the history of racist mobs like the Watsonville riots in the 1930s, racist acts like Chinese massacres that happened around the turn of the 20th century, um, both in California and Wyoming, and I'm sure various other places. Um, if we think about right, the internment of uh, Japanese Americans during World War II, and I say Japanese Americans in that many of them were actually US citizens, right? And, that, and how that came about by a presidential executive order. 
Um, and then, of course, through the high profile hate crimes, right? Um, and not just the ones we're seeing now, but of course, um, thinking about the beating and murder of Vincent Chin back in 1983, right? So again, if we think about, as we know, uh, understand the longer history of Asians in the US, it is a history of anti-Asian racism and violence. Next, I thought it necessary to address the March 16th Atlanta shootings and the way in which the racist motives behind this tragedy were downplayed in favor of amplifying sexist motives. How do racism and misogyny work in tandem to shape perceptions of Asian American women? Yeah, and one of the ways in which it was being downplayed, right, is in the ways in which it was just being narrated, right, through the way the suspect wanted to narrate it. Um, and then I think, too, the ways in which then um, I would say even Asian American campaigns, right, in focusing on just Asian hate, right, might have extracted the fact that, um, first of all, that these were women, right, they were women who labored in a certain industry, um, and oftentimes um, they were immigrant women, right, migrant women um, who worked in particular industries. So I think for me in that sense, right, issues uh, and the identities of race and gender are really inextricable, right? Um, and again, if we think about, as I was mentioning, that long history, um, that long century of the 20th century of um, the U.S. in Asia Pacific, right, it has been uh, helped to kind of crystallize, right, certain perceptions of Asian women. Um, but also, you know, also think about our homegrown industry of Hollywood, right, and how it crafted and really amplified images of Asian women um, as either the dragon lady, so hypersexualized and manipulative, she knows what she's doing, um, or the lotus blossom, right, who's submissive, she's docile. Um, and they've been doing this since the beginning of film time, right, since the uh, silent era of films. In times like these, it's difficult to strike a balance between staying involved with and caring for your community and taking breaks to care for yourself. I asked Dr. Balance for her thoughts on striking this delicate balance. I guess these self-care practices, which I also think are a form of caring for community. So I think taking these breaks does help me, right? Um, have more energy for talking to colleagues and talking to students, right? And talking to administrators. Um, but I think that, you know, certain things like just learning from the past and learning from past philosophers, right? And also understanding um, that our struggles aren't new, right? The things that we're going through aren't, aren't new um, is also super important. Um, and so I'm thinking here, there's a quote from, um, Detroit organizer Grace Lee Boggs, right, who talks about what she calls a visionary organizing, right, um, and it that this visionary organizing uh, requires reimagining, and this reimagining we have to do not just through activism, right, and getting out there and protest and so forth, but also study through reading philosophy, through reading history, right, um, and that we really need to understand, right, every crisis moment as both a danger, right? A, of course, a danger to our livelihood um, and so forth, but also an opportunity, right? For us to kind of um, be creative in how we're gonna respond to this crisis moment. I guess it's not past me to understand that this week has been heavy both because of 
again, the um, recent attack in Manhattan of anti-Asian violence, but simultaneously, right, uh, the trial of Derek Chauvin, right, in Minnesota, um, and of course, um, the ways in which he murdered, right, George Floyd. And so I think that, um, again, this visionary organizing is going to require that we understand and are able to hold, right, um, the pain, um, but also the wanting to move forward in action, right, that both of these kinds of um, events right, are holding for us right now. Finally, Dr. Balansay and I discussed possible solutions and opportunities for positive change. I was curious to know what different social arenas she envisioned this kind of change occurring in. No, I would say in terms of change, I would speak um, most directly to three arenas because they're the ones I feel like most familiar with. So first, in terms of um, education, I do think that we need to diversify our curriculum um, and that would need to start right uh, from the elementary school level. Um, and so having an understanding, right, that Asian American history and stories and lives right, are central right, to this nation. Um, and again, both the nation as it's lived here on this soil and overseas, I think is super important. Um, and then I would say too, particularly diversifying um, at the college level. Um, and I've just been thinking more and more as I've been talking to journalists, right, and artists and writers, the importance of, of them knowing that history, right, of you all knowing that history. So it's in order to help, again, diversify your own industries. Right. Um, I think a second arena would be film and media. Um, so, again, the need to kind of diversify uh, not just the films, um, but I'm thinking also to the organizations. Right. Thinking about the Academy, thinking about the Grammys. Right. So that it can fully represent uh, the diversity of Asian America, because, as I mentioned earlier, I think isn't invisibility and the lack of recognition right, of what's happening is actually just another form of anti-Asian racism and violence. As we wound down our interview, and with our minds still turned towards the idea of change in the arts, Dr. Balanse mentioned a wonderful opportunity for community members to support a local theatrical production created by Asian students in her performing and media arts class. The title of the production is Asiamnesia, and in Dr. Balanse's own words, it will be featuring an all Asian American female cast. And uh, the production itself, right, looks at um, the history of stereotypes and representations of Asian and Asian American women uh, and the ways in which it has impacted uh, the lives of both Asian American actresses and Asian American women, right, across time. So that runs from April 15th to April 17th. And folks can get tickets on the Schwartz website. Um, it is free. And in this time of COVID, uh, it will be an online streamed production. So everybody's welcome to attend. Lastly, it's critical that members of the community, particularly Asians and Asian Americans, be aware of the kinds of resources available to help you learn, take action, and perhaps most importantly, take care of yourself. I'll let Dr. Balanse finish out this segment in her own words. I mean, I just want, you know, any Asian, Asian American students who are out there or faculty colleagues, 
who are listening to just know, right, um, that the Asian American Studies program is here to support you all. Um, it's here for resources. I also know that folks over um, at A3C, the Asian, Asian American Resource Center, right, have been working really hard um, as well to support uh, students in particular um, during this time. But um, again, I hope folks also understand or listeners also understand that this is not just right an Asian American kind of issue, that it's an issue for all of us. Um, and that, yeah, hopefully we can all find a better way forward together. This segment was made possible by the help of Dr. Christine Balance of Cornell University. Thank you for listening, and this has been Izzy Fabata for WVBR News. Big thanks to Izzy for such thoughtful coverage. If you want tickets to the virtual performance that Professor Balance mentioned, visit pma.cornell.edu. Next, Jade Ovadia and I have an interview with Cornell Law Professor John Bloom. You might remember Professor Bloom from an interview about the Trump administration's use of the federal death penalty back in December, and he was willing to come back and chat with us about the legalese involved in the trial of Derek Chauvin. How does a live stream impact a trial? How does the defense reckon with horrifying video evidence of Floyd's death? What does unintentional second-degree murder really mean? We had questions, and Professor Bloom had some answers. Hello, Professor Bloom. Thank you so much for joining us today. So even though we know you since you came on the show back in December, would you like to take a moment and reintroduce yourself? Uh, yes, I'm John Bloom. I'm the same left lead of this professor of trial techniques at Cornell Law School, uh, and I'm uh, happy to be with you again. Thank you so much. Um, so could you just briefly elaborate on the general uh, trial timeline for uh, a murder charge, um, just like how long a murder trial would normally take, and then um, whether uh, the trial of Derek Chauvin um, is demonstrating a similar progression? Um, well, I mean, there's a, a number of things that have to happen after somebody's charged and before they get to trial. There's uh, so they're arrested, and then there's normally uh, what you would call the grand jury would meet to determine whether to indict. Uh, that there would be you know, other kinds of preliminary hearings where the parties are arguing about what type of evidence is going to be admitted at trial, and then there's that's called the pretrial motion stage, and then there's jury selection, uh, and then. You get into the trial proper, which begins with opening statements and then goes to the, the evidentiary phase, which is where the trial is now. Uh, and then there'll be at the conclusion of the prosecution's case. There'll be the defense case. And then there'll be what we call closing arguments. And then the jury will be instructed uh, and they'll go back and deliberate and uh, return a verdict or not. So is uh the so as far as like um, how long this process is taking, is it um, going at about the same speed as um, would normally go for Derek Chauvin or is COVID having any kind of impact on, um, you know, this the speed of that progression? Uh, it doesn't seem to be. I mean, it seems like this is getting to trial pretty quickly. I don't know whether you know both sides want it. Sometimes cases drag out for three years in the pretrial phase. So this is uh, moved with some. Uh, you know, dispatch uh, in that regard. And, and some places are still not having jury trials, uh, you know, yet there are a number of different states that aren't. So I would say 
somewhat, I guess, to my surprise, this has moved at a faster pace than I would have anticipated in getting to the trial. The trial itself seems to be moving about like what you would expect in a, uh, you know, in a fairly, uh, I wouldn't call this an extraordinarily complex trial, but there are a lot of witnesses because there were a bunch of people there who sort of saw what was going on uh, and they may have very different perspectives on it. But, um, you know, the jury's going to hear from a, uh, a lot of different people uh, you know, in this case, which is, I think, probably a good thing. Right. Yeah. So kind of going off of that, Derek Chauvin is charged with unintentional second degree murder, third degree murder and second degree manslaughter. So how is the unintentional second degree murder charge different from the third degree or manslaughter charge? You know, these are all none of these are really that significantly different. I mean, this is sort of one of the uh, things often, you know, this works to criminal defendants sort of detriment. You can charge somebody with so many things uh, in the course of a homicide. But uh, basically uh, the difference uh, you know, I, we don't need to go through every one of them, but it's just uh, as you sort of move down the line, there's usually a lesser degree of what we call mens rea, uh, you know, or intent uh, recalled, you know. So were you did you act recklessly? Did you act with the intent to kill? Uh, you know, did you act, uh, you know, in, in that regard? So really the variation between all of these is what did you intend uh, and, you know, what did, was what happened, either what you intended to happen uh, or was it maybe what, uh, you know, you didn't really intend for this to happen, but a reasonable person should have known it should happen, uh, you know, from from what you did. Yeah. You know, so I think with the prosecution, the reason they probably charged him with all three of these is, uh well, one, they see that a lot of these cases, it's really hard to get a conviction, right? It's hard to convict a police officer under these circumstances. Juries tend to be very, you know, they, they're going to give the officer the benefit of the doubt in, in many occasions. So I think they want a series of charges with that. Uh, so uh, and they, they're hoping that the that they can agree on one of them. Because uh, if you just went with one and somebody said, well, yeah, I don't really think he intended to kill him. Like if you go with the top count, the, the most severe count. Uh, and then they might think, well, look, I think he, you know, what he did was maybe manslaughter. But I don't think he really, you know, this was, uh, you know, I don't think this was murder. Uh, so uh, the, anyway, the short answer is it just has the difference in the degrees of intent that they think that the officer had. Uh, and the reason to have more than one. Uh, count is the you know the, with the hope that the jury can agree on at least one of them. Right. So just like out of my own curiosity, so the second degree murder charge is obviously like the highest charge that's included, but um, there's this like unintentional second degree murder uh, part of that. So um, how does that play in with intent? Like how do those interact? How how can it be like an unintentional second degree murder, but then like also have the um, highest level of intent? Yeah, well, Minnesota has, uh, you know, first of all, this varies from state to state. It's not like every every state's criminal law is the same. So Minnesota has broken homicide up in a lot of different ways uh, where where a number of other jurisdictions sort of wouldn't do this. 
Uh, and my understanding of the unintentional part of this is that you didn't really intend to murder him, but a, a reasonable person would have known that that was a logical, a, a probable consequence of what you did. Uh, so it's, it's almost kind of like something we talk about this is felony murder. You didn't really intend to kill, but what you were doing, uh, was either so reckless or, you know, or something that, you know, a reasonable purpose would have known someone should die from that. And that supplies the intent element. Right. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense to me now. Um, so, so, you know, the video of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd's neck for nine and a half minutes is obviously pretty damning from an evidentiary standpoint. Um, not, you know, let alone like the emotional, um, you know, and traumatic impact that, you know, viewing it has. Um, so do you have any idea as to, um, you know, what strategies defense counsels, um, like employ to reckon with, you know, such, you know, video evidence? Yeah, they're going to uh, they are, their case is going to be that he didn't die from the, the officer kneeling on his neck, that he was under the influence of drugs uh, and that um, because of the stress and the anxiety of, of, of this and stuff that he was under, that he had a heart attack uh, or died of a, you know, a cause unrelated to what uh, the officer was doing or that it, or that it wasn't the direct cause. Uh, you know, of this, they laid some of this out in their opening statement. Uh, and that's, I think, going to be the defense that, you know, regardless of what you think about what the officer did, uh, he didn't actually kill him, that uh, Floyd was, uh, you know, a drug addict and under the influence of drugs. And his he had a uh, he died as a result of that. Right. Seems like a stretch to me, but you know, I'm not in court listening to it. Yeah, so kind of talking about the courtroom right now, most murder trials do not allow cameras, but this judge has decided that this is a high profile enough case to allow this to be live streamed. So although the jury obviously still controls the outcome of the case, how might the TV cameras and court of public opinion impact the strategies for both the special prosecutor and the defense? Well, uh, in general, uh, I think there's been, a, a, you know, a good bit of negative experiences with televised trials. Uh, the most famous uh, televised trial was when O.J. Simpson was tried for killing his, uh, his you know, wife uh, in, in that. And that trial was televised. And you know, I think many people thought that it, it created a whole sort of, uh, especially in you know, a place like Los Angeles, to have something like this on television. Uh, just turn the whole thing into kind of a circus. Uh, and that, you know, witnesses were like, you know, feeling like they were being like auditioned for reality TV shows and, uh, you know, and all kinds of things. So, uh, you know, I'm, and since then, really, and judges have been reluctant to, and, and many judges, not all, have been reluctant to allow uh, trials to be televised, at least from beginning to end. So I'm kind of surprised. Uh, they did that here uh, in that, you know, because of that. Uh, but maybe the judge felt like, well, if, you know, whenever there's going to be a verdict at the end of this and if, uh, you know, we want the, the public to be aware of sort of what happened from pillar to post. But uh, I think it does create sometimes incentives for people's testimony to not be, you know, to maybe be a little bit more dramatic and otherwise would be because they feel like, you know, they're, 
they're going to show up on the uh, you know some you know, either on you know the the evening news or some other type of platform uh, in that regard. So I, but there you have it. Now, I would have done it if I was a judge, but nobody asked my opinion <laughs> until we did. <laughs> um, so sort of, you know, getting to wrap things up a little bit, are there any uh, misconceptions that you're hearing or seeing um, or just like other skewed expectations uh, that you would want to like clear up about the legal procedures involved in this trial specifically? Uh, no, I don't know, if I, particularly, I mean, I, I think uh, just to, to repeat something I mentioned earlier, you know, these uh, these cases have cases of where officers kill people, even when the evidence appears to many people to be quite strong. Uh, you know, it's been very difficult to get a, the jury to unanimously find somebody guilty. Uh, you know, of this one, because I think the people uh, can now, I think a difference here is many of these other situations, A, didn't go on this long and B, weren't captured on video. <laughs> uh, you know, so and when it's not on video, it's, it's virtually impossible because, quite frankly, frequently the officers can lie their way out of it. Uh, you know, the, the, one of the only real major convictions of this was uh, the officer in Charleston who you know shot the person in the back running away from him without the video. Like, you know, he had never been convicted, uh, you know, of that. So I, I think what, you know, but I do think what makes this case different is that he – he kneeled on his neck for so long and there were people sort of around saying, you know, Hey man, what the hell are you doing? Uh, you know, here, uh, and you know, there been George Floyd's on video going, look, I, I can't breathe, uh, you know, in this. And there was no, you know, it wasn't like an emergency situation. Some of these cases, sometimes there's like something's happening real quick or that they think the person has the gun or here he was in handcuffs lying down, uh, you know, on that. Uh, and, uh, you know, he was confronted by, you know, some bystanders, people, including like one of the, it was a, I can't remember if she was a fireman or a fire person, uh, you know, or an EMT person going, you know, look, you know, you're using this sort of chokehold on this dude. You, you, know, you shouldn't be doing this. Uh, so, uh, you know, I think that this case has a, uh, a little better chance of resulting in a conviction from the prosecution standpoint uh, than many, but, uh, it's by no means, I think, based on all the history that we have, I would call this would be a slam dunk for conviction. Do you, you know, just to kind of gauge your uh, confidence in in that uh, result, how would you rate um, like percentage wise the um, just like, you know, purely your own, uh, you know, like guess here as to whether this will end up in a unanimous conviction or not? Yeah, you know, it, it. so with all the caveats of everything I just said placed in this and with the reality, the, the acknowledgement that, uh, you know, you can sometimes get a distorted view when all you're doing is reading news accounts and watching news stories. You, know, you kind of have to be in the courtroom sort of all day, every day, kind of listening to exactly what's being said. Uh, so, you know. Uh, all that being said, I, I probably shouldn't render an opinion, but I will, uh, which is I think there's a, you know, I would say there's probably at least a 75 percent chance that he gets convicted of something. I think it's unlikely he gets convicted of the uh, the most serious count. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think for two, for 
you know, for some of the jurors, I mean, they understand the one thing, you know, that television also does too, is it makes them feel like, okay, we're really being watched on this. Uh, and so no, they know there's a lot of public scrutiny and I just think at the end of the day, uh, you know, my, uh, the, the nine and a half minutes, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a hell of a long time to be there leaning on somebody's uh, neck like this for, for, and for no good reason. Yeah. Uh, you know, no, no reason that he, there's nothing he can really point to. I don't think to say, yeah, I needed to do this. Uh, you know, he was handcuffed. They got him up, put him in the car, taking him downtown. You know, there were, there were, it wasn't like he was the only cop. He was waiting for backup, uh, you know, and all this. So I think in the end, that means he'll probably get convicted of something. Uh, you know, what the something is, I think uh, I, I would not even venture to predict on that. I mean, I think there you've really got to have a really more nuanced version of exactly what's being said. And we haven't heard his testimony yet. You know, or if he, is he going to testify? I think he almost certainly will have to. Uh, he's going to have to get up there and explain this, uh, you know, nine and a half minutes, I think, unless there's something really unusual that the prosecution's case hits a hiccup that's unexpected. So far, there haven't been any, uh, you know, of this that I've known. So, so I think he gets convicted of something, uh, probably, you know, I'd say 75%. Uh, and that, uh, you know, and that opinion is worth as much money as you're paying me for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, for sure. Uh, Jay, do you, do you have any other, any other questions? No. Is there anything else you would like to add? No, that, that's, that's it. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us, Professor Bloom. I'm happy to do it. Happy to spend some time with you. You guys stay safe. Thank you. You as well. Bye. Bye. Thanks again to Professor Bloom for being a repeat guest on Talk of the Town. And thanks to Jado Vadia for spearheading the interview. Thanks also to Izzy Frabata and Dr. Christine Balance for our first story as well. If you want to listen to our live radio show, you should tune in to 93.5 FM WVBR on Saturdays at 3 p.m. But you can also listen live online at WVBR.com. If you still need WVBR news content, we have you covered. There's Black Voices on the Hill that airs on Fridays at 2 p.m. and can be found on podcast platforms as well or at WVBR.com slash Black Voices. We'd love if you gave us a follow on social media. We are at WVBR FM News on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we post local up-to-date information there as well. I'm Grace Fairchild for WVBR News, and thanks for listening.